Hey guys, quick heads up before we jump into the episode. Had a technological snag midway through. There's about three minutes of audio where Brian doesn't sound perfect, and the sound clips that I played for him are inaudible on the podcast. I truncated the space so that you didn't have to wait to listen to nothing, but I just wanted to give you that heads up. I apologize. I had to do an update on my computer on the fly while we were recording, and I had to forensically stitch Brian's audio in just to get it to the level that you're going to hear today. So again, apologies. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh, and today we're looking at 2006's Australian Open, where Roger won his seventh Grand Slam title. Speaking of seven, Brian, speaking of seven titles, knowing what we know now from the MJ doc, does he win a seventh ring with Chicago if they bring the band back together on one-year deals? No, because Scotty Pippen, was, who's a big part of that band, he played the bass, let's say, he's not coming back to the Bulls on a one-year deal. The whole point of Pippen in the 90s was how angry he was about how underpaid he was relative to the rest of the league. He was going out to get his after that 98 season. He got his, good for Scotty Pippen, good for Scotty Pippen's family uh, down the line a couple of generations. So I don't think that Jordan gets seven at what would have been Look how exhausted he was, too, at the end of those three-peats, the 93 one when he's 30, and then again the 98 one. You see him doing that for another year? I don't know, man. It, it created this whole cascade of thought in my head and so many others' heads. Like, wow, what could have been? Um, I think in this era, um, you know, like the LeBron-type camaraderie, you might have been able to execute one-year deals, but that era, you're absolutely right. There was. As we know, there was five, six years of pent-up animosity, and it had to blow. Yeah. But I'll give you the flip side. I also don't think Phil Jackson wanted to go back. He was probably over it, and it worked out well for him. Took a nice year off, and then he walks into Shaq and Kobe in L.A. Um, but the other thing, too, is the lockout. So that season didn't start until January. The eighth seed Knicks made the 99 finals. You're telling me a, an older, tired Michael Jordan who gets a longer offseason doesn't beat uh, Latrell Sprewell and company? I, I'm going to take Jordan in that situation. So maybe they do get that title. We will never know, sadly. How fun was it to watch him watching an iPad? It was awesome. It is the, it is the next level meme of memes for all eternity. I feel less cool because I don't have like brown a brown drink in my little tumbler. I just have like a, a water bottle that you can't really see because of my virtual background. We're going to talk about the Australian Open. But first, if you'll recall, last episode, um, I kind of floated this thing just off the cuff. I heard you say something and it got me wondering and it got me doing a bunch of deep dive stuff as well as a result of it. You know, we talked, I told you I was listening to the audiobook of the 2008 Wimbledon final. We ended last episode asking about the big three's weaknesses, what they are. If you are game planning for them, you have to be able to tell your player, go to their backhand or focus on X or try to stop doing Y. What did you come up with? Rafa, Novak, and then Roger. 
Well, just the way you phrase that question shows how how challenging this can be because what you would almost call a weakness for another player, for these guys, it's more a chink in the armor where it's not something you can maybe exploit over and over again, but it's maybe self-inflicted, something that hurts them. Federer is the only one historically with what I would say is the clear, visible weakness, and that's the backhand. We talk about how pretty that one-hand backhand is, but as we see right here in 2006, or we're going to see in 2006 against Nadal, it's susceptible because Nadal gets that high kick off the ball. Federer's got to take the one-hand backhand higher. He's not as comfortable. He doesn't generate as much on it, and it turns into this slicey backhand, a more defensive shot that can get picked apart. So that's the one that I would say is Federer's and I'm I'm really hesitating to say weakness, but that's the one area. Chink in the armor. Yeah, it's a vulnerability. Djokovic, I would say it's the smash, that overhead smash, which is not a shot you're playing all that often, but it's not as consistent as you would want it to be, often with sometimes comical results to look at because when a player misses an overhead smash, you're thinking, wow, this guy's a number one player in the world. How's he missing an overhead? He looks like me playing in the local park. But it can happen. It happens to everybody, and we've seen Djokovic do that time and time again. The other thing I will say about Djokovic in the bigger picture, some of the lulls he's had are are a little odd, uh, usually related uh, to injuries or after he won the career Grand Slam by finally winning the French Open. He was just a little bit out of it, it looked like. And there were some strange losses. Dennis Istomin, Australia 2017. We'll actually talk about Dennis Istomin in this episode. And that's something that not even so much – hurts Djokovic because he's he's human but I think it also solidifies the case of Federer because when Federer was at his peak around this time 2005 6 7 you never saw those weird losses he was beaten okay 2006 spoiler alert he was beaten five times four of them were Nadal one was a young Andy Murray that's pretty illustrious company you didn't see that too often with Nadal um I would say the weakness is the health and it's but you knew this when you first saw him, you're thinking, how is his body going to hold up playing the kind of style that he plays with? Just so grueling, so physical. Uh, it has held up, but he's also had to spend time away from the game. You wondered about the future, especially around that 2014, 2015 time. But he has come back. He's been resurgent. Um, in terms of an actual game thing, when you're walking on court against Nadal, uh, the serve is fine. It's good, but it doesn't generate as much offense as other players do. and there's been talk about him changing it, but at the end of the day, it usually looks the same. A big deal, uh, beginning of the year, two years, or last year, 2019, he had talked about tweaking the service motion and trying to get a little more velocity on it, just win a few more easier points. And then you saw the serve, and it was, wow, that looks pretty much the same as the serve before. Um, so, But again, that's not even a weakness. That's just something that, okay, he's not imposing on you like he is everything else. Yeah, you can't attack that. You can't attack his first serve because uh, that's on him. It's the point that that he'll dictate or define. Right. Um, I have that as well as sort of like the only chink in his armor is the brute force, which goes to his longevity. Like he goes for every single point like Russell Westbrook. Like every single play is the last play. And as a fan, that's an awesome thing, right? You love to watch that, but it makes you wonder if he – doesn't already eclipse Roger if he's just a little more economical um, in his motion and maybe letting some points go, right? That's the one thing that I would tell my player is keep him in the point and hope he makes a mistake on his end. But again, 
that's not really something that you can build a tennis career on, hoping that you're hoping that Rafa Nadal stays in a rally long enough to make an error. Yeah, that's like the old, you know, if it's attributed to Mike Tyson or Joe Lewis, the everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Yeah. And that's what it's like playing tennis, I would imagine, against Rafael Nadal. The, there is a flip side, though, to that point you just made, because I, I think that, yeah, his the injuries have kept him away at times, but he has done a good job of being able to persevere. And the resilience to get through it all is remarkable. Ten years ago, even five years ago, if you said he's going to win two majors in 2019, you would think, I don't know about that. I don't know if I see that happening. And one of them is going to be the U.S. Open, which is maybe the most grueling to win. But he, he did it last year. He's the defending U.S. Open champion. And we as we sit here today, he's a few weeks from turning 34. So I think that is worth something in and of itself, too. Why is it considered? I've heard that forever. Why is it considered the most grueling to win? Um, it's the time of the year when it comes. Um, so you've got six, seven, eight months on your legs and on your body already. It's hot. It's New York. There's a lot of extra stuff going on. So it's hard to stay focused. It's big. It's bright. It's just very different. Yeah. Bright lights, big city combined with the physical toll playing on a hard court. It's just very taxing. 2006, Brian, this is considered to statistically be Roger's best year from Wikipedia all the way down to the publications at the national level, all the way down to the local level. 12 singles titles, 92-5 and match record, which I think is what stands out the most to me. Uh, He's a finalist in 16 out of the 17 tournaments that he played. He made it to the finals of all four Grand Slams and won three of them. He only lost to two players, Nadal and Andy Murray. So let's go through Roger's path. If you got anything on any of these players, any Fabrice Santoro level body slams for me, please jump in. Round of 128, Dennis Istaman, biggest achievement was beating Djokovic in the second round of the Australian Open in 2017. So I, just before we entered this coronavirus uh, lockdown, one of the last sports events I worked in, um, I did a Davis Cup qualifier. USA and Uzbekistan played indoors in Honolulu. USA won, clean sweep. But the big gun for Uzbekistan tennis was and is Dennis Istomin. So he is just the consummate pro. He'd already, he'd won, I think, a couple of, or at least one challenger title this year, 20, 2020. Um, he's now 30, I think, four. He'll be 34 later this year in September. So he has come from a country where, you know, there's not a big tennis tradition. He was involved in a pretty bad car accident as a junior. I'm remembering what I learned going into that match and uh, couldn't play at all. Then you're out here. He's not even 20 years old at this point playing the world number one at the Australian Open. Dennis Istomin comports himself well. Doesn't work out on that day. It didn't work out for anybody against Roger Federer in 2006. But for Istomin to still be out here firing away in 2020, it's tip the cap to Dennis Istomin. He was at one point a top 50 player. Um, never made it to the second week of a Grand Slam. My little uh, carrot here is that uh, he wears glasses like Tip Sarovich. They're the only two players that actually wear the spectacles on the court. Well, at the time, there were two. Then we got to go. Uh, there, there are a few more since. Hyun Chung of future Australian Open semifinals. But I want to jump in with the very unique Dennis Istomin fact. 
coached by his mother for most of his professional career. You don't see that too often. What's her story? Was she was she a professional? Um, I don't know if she was actually a pro or obviously she had a background in tennis, but I don't know if she played competitively um, or if she was just a big player. The middle class of tennis that we've mentioned so many times um, that was illuminated pretty amazingly in that audiobook I was listening to as well. The fact that there's a haves and have nots quarters for players at these tournaments. Um, it's very old guard. It doesn't feel very woke in today's sort of society, but it's not just unique to tennis, I would argue. I think there's a lot of, even within the basketball rungs or within the NFL rungs, there are certain owners or there are certain teams that get better facilities, treatment, accoutrement than the other guys. Like, obviously, look at Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban, right? A lot of players wanted to go to play for Mark Cuban because he treated them unlike any other owner. Going back to what we were just talking about, and as we sit here, the documentary just ended, so that's why we're talking about it. But in Last Dance, when Jordan came back from his retirement and he sees these guys, like I think he mentioned Steve Kerr and some other players who had joined the Bulls when he was gone, and he's he's like they're they're acting like you know they they had something to do with the Bulls winning three titles. They weren't here. It's it's they're similar uh, that that kind of hierarchy structure. You say it's not the most progressive thought in the world, but uh, it certainly still exists, especially in sports. It's innate in to to be human is to be flawed, right? And that's where it yeah. comes from. Round of sixty four. Florian Mayer career high eighteen in the world in two thousand eleven. He is known for his unorthodox style of play. I underlined the word unorthodox. It got me curious. What is unorthodox and what is orthodox, just generally speaking? Well, it's a very broad term. It's not like, basically unorthodox is different. Um, just if somebody plays different than the the current style of the game, you know, if you watch a guy who plays serve and volley today, and the first one that jumps out to me is Dan Evans. I mean, everybody plays serve and volley to a point, but somebody who's going to play it a little bit more often, especially on a hard court, they'll slice it a lot. You know, Dan Evans jumps out to me. He's a British player. Um, but 30, 40 years ago, Dan Evans' game would have been conventional. And what was unorthodox was somebody hanging out of the baseline or 10 feet behind the baseline, smashing the ball like we see Rafa Nadal do today. Uh, Nick Kyrgios is unorthodox with some of the things that he does. Um, some of Nadal's mannerisms are unorthodox. It, it's just different. It's just a way of describing if something is a little bit different. Now, as you can see me, Vic, I'm sitting, we're on Zoom, a, a virtual background, and it's a picture I took working at the Australian Open, and it's actually Federer serving against Dan Evans a couple of years ago. It was really cool. I had a great view. And Dan Evans is a player that you could tell Federer almost enjoys playing. It doesn't suit uh, Dan Evans' game at all because Federer is good at getting right into those games. But you could, after that match that day, there was you could sense the just the appreciation Federer had playing somebody like a Dan Evans in the way that he is a little bit different. And he's not blessed with all the physical gifts that you see other players strutting around with. And I, I got that sense that day from Roger that, yeah, he – Tip the cap to Dan Evans, those types of players. That's how I classify unorthodox, at least in my book. Is there a best quintessentially unorthodox player in your mind? I would, my first thought when you say unorthodox tennis, I think of the women and I think of Marion Bartoli, okay, who won Wimbledon and then promptly retired shortly thereafter. But she was, I mean, she had a, a quirky personality. Her game was unorthodox. 
Uh, you should take these practice swings between each point. Just play different. Hit hit a big ball, which certainly worked well at Wimbledon. But when you say unorthodox in the last 15, 20 years, you probably think of Marion Bartoli. Other guys, um, you know, think of people with flair. Because sometimes if somebody's got a lot of flair, that will – you'll confuse – you can – lump that in with being unorthodox right. and somebody else that um pops to mind is dustin brown um his twitter handle is dready tennis and that's because he's got dreadlocks down to about his waist he is jamaican german um and you might know dustin brown best for his win over rafael nadal at wimbledon but the way he plays lots of flair he's diving all over the place he can pull off shots that nobody else can that's unorthodox so when I, you say unorthodox, the three people, and this would be an interesting dinner party, would be Dan Evans, Marion Bartoli, and Dustin Brown. They jump into my mind. That was a tennis highlight reel for the ages. That yes. Finishing up on Florian Mayer, he was a semifinalist, I think, in two Wimbledons. 0-8 against Roger, uh, 2-0 against Fernando Gonzalez, who is a fan of our podcast. <laughs> yes. How cool is that? Round of 32. Max Mirny, we've talked about him. Roger beat him in straight sets. I'm going to jump to Tommy Haas if you're cool with it. Yeah. Uh, round of 16. He was the number two player in the world in 2002. Career, of course, was plagued by injuries. Middle name is Mario. I've uh, been playing a lot of Mario Kart lately with my kids, so that jumped out at me. Um, and he was a three-time semifinalist at the Australian Open, a one-time Wimbledon finalist and made at least the quarterfinals of all the Grand Slams. He was an early tennis prodigy, got a free ride to Nick Bollettieri's Tennis Academy. I read a little bit more about Haas, and it made me wonder one thing. I don't know if you have an elegant answer to this, but Nick Bollettieri is the guy when it comes to early tennis prodigies. Um, Maria's worked with them, Maria Sharapova. Uh, obviously Agassi's legendary sort of description of that experience in his book. Any thoughts on how Nick Bollettieri did not have his scopes on Roger, Rafa, or Novak? Um, I'm sure he had his scopes on them to the point that he was aware of them, but I think it's just different circumstances for each individual person. Um, and a place like Bollettieri's or any of those academies, it's it's different. You've got to Basically, these three, these big three, they had relatively normal childhoods. If you pick somebody up and send them off to the other part of the country, the other part of the world, whatever it is, that I wouldn't call that a normal childhood. Um, and I think that Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal have all been uh, – let me backtrack a bit. Djokovic had a normal uh, – slightly less normal childhood because he did he had the least normal. He had the least normal out of the three. For sure. Right. Well, obviously, growing up um, in Serbia at that time was came with its own challenges. But in terms of tennis, uh, he was noticed at a young age, but and worked with the coach for a, a very long time, Jelena Gancic. And then she recommended that he go train in Germany. So he moved to Germany when he was young. And so that's where, where his setup was a little bit different. Federer um, was just – and Federer was a little bit – you know, he – I don't know if he was ever approached about going to Bollettieri's, but he had a normal Switzerland and you struggle to see him picking up and moving. He struggled to see his parents pushing that. 
Nadal's parents, because Nadal, I would say, is the biggest, what we call a prodigy of, of the big three. Um, the Spanish Federation wanted Rafa to go train in Barcelona, and his parents said, no, he's not leaving yeah, Mallorca. So if he's not leaving Mallorca to go to Barcelona, he's not leaving Mallorca to go to Bradenton. Great point. Um, so Nadal, I think that one was was very quickly out of the question. I'm, would Baltari have loved to have them? Absolutely. But then you also wonder, how, how would things have turned out? There's so many of these, would it have worked out the same way? And those are unanswerable questions. One thing I did catch in the audio book was how Roger and Rafa's lives, in to, just to exclamation point your point, is they were living very well-to-do, upper-middle-class lives. Families were stable, and if they did not play tennis, they would have been successful in whatever it was that they did. There was no urgency. There was no, not in a bad way, but there was just, it was a different setup, to your point. Maria Sharapova, I think, was escaping. There was tumult in her life at a young age, and Novak Djokovic, as we know, obviously. So there was an incentive to get out of where they were, there wasn't really an incentive to leave Mallorca, and there wasn't really an incentive to leave Switzerland. But I thought it was interesting because Nick Balateri is always associated with being, especially in the United States, as being the guy who he's like the tennis whisperer. I don't know if that's an appropriate statement or not, but he identifies talent at a young age and he develops it. And the people that come out of his academy are people that we see in these tournaments. Yeah, absolutely. I've worked with uh, Jimmy Arias before, who was kind of the first big uh, Balateri guy. He was a former top five player. He's been in the semifinals of the U S open and he is now, you know, Nick's older. He's in his eighties. Uh, he might actually be in his nineties. It's still very relevant though, right? The Academy still, is it? Oh, absolutely. Is it still held in high regard in tennis circles? Absolutely. You know, all the, all those academies are, um, and now Jimmy Arias is kind of the head of that. I mean, Nick sold it to IMG. So it's the IMG Academy. Uh, Baltieri will be 89 this year. I just wanted to clarify that. Um, so yeah, it's what he did was revolutionary, and certainly Andre Agassi's talked about that. We saw, you know, Jim Courier and everybody who's come through there over the years. But it is interesting to think: would things have been different for either him or the players if any of these big three had wound up over there? Finishing up on Haas, I have some watching comments for you coming up on him. He is four and thirteen against Roger lifetime. He had five sets against. Roger in this tournament, which obviously puts it on a plate unto itself. Five and two against Safin, seven and six against Roddick, four and six against Agassi, three and five against Sampras, three and six against Novak, 0 and five against Nadal, and five and 0 against Nalbandian. My point is simple the guy's a baller. Um, And injuries. If we lived in a vacuum, in a parallel universe, and his injuries did not cripple his sort of longevity, is he more of a Grand Slam champion in your mind? Just raw stats that I just put out there? Um, If the injuries don't come, yeah, he probably gets a couple of them. His problem at times, not just the injuries, was between the years. Some of the big moments, he would tighten up a little bit. Mm. Those pressure moments you know, he did not handle them maybe as well as some other guys did. So, okay, even if he's physically healthy, maybe that's just not a barrier he's going to get over. So I hesitate to say he's going to reap in the trophies, but if he gets hot for two weeks and is feeling good, then what's the, he certainly has talent to win a major. Great segue, because you just said in between the ears, and this match, if nothing else, wasn't in between the ears match. He came back down two sets to love 
against Roger, which as we've known and as we've seen, once he's exposed blood on any part of your body, he's going to take it all out of you, right? Um, he comes back, makes it a five-setter. Fifth set is kind of a, a wash. It's over very quickly. But it was interesting nonetheless to sort of see what happened here. He gave Roger a true test. Chris Fowler called that game. And I think um, they were also sort of anticipating a hype of Roger in what he described as parallel pursuits. It was obviously winning this match, but also thinking about his larger history. And I wonder how much of that he was actually thinking at that time, how cognizant he was of it. I'm starting to believe a little bit more that he was a, he's a little bit more of a chess player than I've been giving him credit for in the past. I heard in the book that he used to read the articles that were written about him after he won matches, and he used to relish in all the adulation. And when he lost, he wouldn't look at a single thing. Uh, that humanized him to the extent that I actually believe that he was aware of the parallel pursuits. Do you agree with that? Do you think he was checking off boxes on every match as he goes? How does this impact me here? How does this impact me there? Or was he locked and loaded on what he was doing in the moment? I don't think he was doing it match by match, but I think tournament by tournament okay. um, as the year would go on. I, I think it was a little bit more of a macro view. It wasn't so much, oh my goodness, I just beat Nicholas Kiefer at the Australian Open. Another notch on my win streak. I am the greatest player of all time. Here's another notch for the belt. But if he wins the Australian, you know, when he's doing this week in, week out, and he's reading about his greatness, he's seeing the bank account get a whole lot bigger. He's working with Nike on a on a monogram blazer to wear at Wimbledon. I mean, that can certainly change things. I'm going to ask you about how you feel about that on that episode. Next episode. Yeah, we'll talk, but yeah. I'm sure it was in the works here in yeah. January 2006. So yeah, I think he he's aware of his place, but I don't think he's aware. He's not distracted by that match by match. Third set, Haas saves a break point and then turns around and breaks Federer to go up 4-2. Um, Federer shanked a winner. In the fifth set, watch and comment. Haas gets it to 2-2, but then Federer takes the next four to close it out. Yeah, so that's just Federer on the run. It's amazing to watch these two because of how similar their game styles look, especially Haas with the one-hand backhand. But then Federer on the run where he's able to just sharpen the angle on this, this forehand that looked like, you know, he's got the sideline open. Haas probably thinks it's going down. This, he's going to blast it, try to go for a winner. But instead he gets the winner, but he goes cross-court with it. And that's just, again, what he's able to just come up with in the middle of a rally. But to do it fifth set when it's two all deep in this match, that's what makes it even more impressive. Ballsy shot. Haas fell apart in that match. He hits a shot that's called out. He thinks it's in. He actually goes to the umpire and has words with him. And as you know all too well, when that happens in a Roger Federer match, Roger speeds things up because it's a bit of a head game at that point. And he quickly goes up 4-2, steps on the gas, and it's a match. And we go to the quarterfinal. We're obviously going to come back to Tommy Haas again. I wanted to set the stage here only because it was a five-setter. And anybody that goes five sets against Roger in his prime uh, is somebody that is worthy of uh, close examination. Um, quarterfinal, uh, Davidenko, four-setter. He's been an enigma to me, this guy. Some press outlets, I think, is venerated as the New York Times referred to him as a, like a chicken. He's got beady eyes and he's got that bright yellow hair. Um, he's ranked five. He reached as high as three in the world 
a perennial semifinalist for a while, but always met up with Roger. Again, this is a what-if question. How many titles does he hold if Roger isn't in his way? Guy had game. Major titles? Major titles. Grand slams. Ah, I'm looking at, I don't, like maybe one, like I don't see him, you know, it's like you look at Andy Roddick and you think, okay, Roddick's got, if if no Federer, let's give Roddick two more to start. Like, let's just, for the heck of it, let's say he gets easily two more. Um, You know, maybe Davidenko gets one. Um, Like, I I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't see. Not putting a lot of stock on him. No, um, I, I just think the other, the other players of his era were better. All right. A guy who reached number three, Brian, is only 26th all-time in earnings. Is that at all odd to you? Uh, no, because you've got to do it consistently. Um, he won the ATP Finals one year. That was probably his biggest his biggest title. Um, it was 09. But I, yeah, I... And he's also been clouded by the whole match-fixing controversy. Um, he was cleared of any involvement. We want to make that clear. But that, I think, has unfairly hovered over him for a while. So maybe that's why he's not remembered as fondly. He wasn't the most, let's say, aesthetically exciting player to watch. So I, I like you don't get a lot of feelings from people when you talk about Nikolai Davidenko. A lot of people get cleared, but they've been sullied. The taint yeah. doesn't leave you. That's the problem. Anyway, this is the third set of their match. Federer down five games to three. Davidenko is serving for the set. And Roger does this. Yeah, so that's unbelievable defense by Federer. And it's also a point where we talked earlier in in this episode about how the one-hand backhand um, can maybe be his his weakness at times, but right there you see how he can also use it as a strength because he's able to just reach out with the one hand and block the ball back, keep the point alive. Okay, he's not generating any offense off that, but he's making Davidenko play extra shots. He can almost sense the Davidenko frustration building. He's trying to hit the ball harder and harder. Federer's further and further back. He's turning into Nadal just firmly on defense, and then he comes up with it, and he's well on his way. Okay, so Roger then methodically inches his way back to 5-5 and wins the set, 7-5. Blown opportunity and potential forever what-if for Davidenko, but as you've elegantly articulated, who cares? But I will, I'm going to jump in there, though. Big what-if because of, and we didn't really talk about this, how strange this Australian Open was in terms of who wasn't there. The defending champion, Marat Safin, he was hurt, he couldn't play. No Agassi, no Nadal. A lot of big names lost early. This was a wide-open tournament, as we'll, of course, see in the final. Um, so if there was a chance for Davidenko in the peak Federer era, and really a chance for everybody else, this was it. Roger was 19-2 against Davidenko. One of the reasons I do this exercise, just so you know, partially it's for me to contextualize things that helps me, but it's also just to show you that there's pretty much only one or two people that have ever been able to ever really hang with Roger. We kind of know that, but when you look at these tournaments and we're go- as we're going through them, this just sort of helps to put a mental picture on the disparity between his game and everybody, virtually everybody else's. Semifinal, Kiefer, another four-setter. 
We've given Kiefer enough attention, I think. I don't have anything particularly interesting about this match. Baghdadis time. First unseeded player to make an Australian Open final. How big a deal is that? Um, it's a big deal, but it, it's an interesting deal because when you see unseeded players win tournaments, it's usually one or two things. First of all, it doesn't happen often. It's somebody who comes out of nowhere. And this was more a lot earlier. You saw in the 80s, Mats Wieland, Mats Wielander, Boris Becker. They were 17. They won the French Open. They won Wimbledon. Um, Agassi had been going through a, a down phase when he won the U.S. Open. He was unseated in 94. Then you get another young up-and-comer in Gustavo Kirton. He won the French Open. He was 20. Then you look at people who were, again, down on their luck. We talked about Goran Ivanisevic when he won Wimbledon as a wild card, which is also impressive. Um, then you get the the kind of one-offs, which you don't see as much on the men's side. You've certainly seen it over the last few years for the women. Uh, Gaston Gaudio, when he won the French Open the year before Nadal began his reign. Uh, so those are the champions, the unseeded champions. You you don't see it often because, you know, it's kind of like you the Bill Parcells quote, you are what your record says you are. So usually the cream finds a way of rising to the top. Also, when you start seeding 32 players, which they now do, that is going to significantly increase the amount of people who are seated who have, you would say, a, a fighting chance of at least getting to the final. Good point. Baghdadis' path. If any of these names jump out, please interject. Gimmelstab in the first round. Stepanek, who is ranked 17. Uh, again, this is an unseated guy beating, I would argue, a very impressive path to the final. Gremelmeyer, who was a qualifier, made it to the third round. There probably could be a cool 30 for 30 story there somewhere. Uh, Roddick, who's number two. Lubicic, seven. Now Bandian, four. All that for the honor and pleasure of playing Roger in the final. Um, impressive path on paper. Versus Roddick, Brian, he was reading his serves in a way that I haven't seen other players do. This is a young guy, Marcos Bagdadis. He's just come on the scene. He was shuffling his feet to get positioning, and he breaks Roddick in the first set. A lot of confidence, fearlessness, sort of reminded me of Nadal against Roger in Miami when you got nothing to lose, you just kind of go for broke. And I saw that with Roddick, and I really think it propelled him to give him the confidence to go, hey, I can go deep in this tournament. I can maybe even win this tournament. Yeah, and that's something we've talked about, uh, as we've talked about Roddick a lot before, um, against Federer, when, you know, if the serve is coming back to you when you're Andy Roddick, exactly. it's not what you want. And that's a situation that Baghdadis was able to get him into. Something else that Baghdadis had going for him throughout this tournament, and it lives on at the Australian Open, you certainly saw it in that semifinal, the epic over in Albandia, is the crowd support. Uh, Melbourne has a very vibrant Greek community. Uh, you see it now with the support they give to Stefano Tsitsipas. But at the time, Baghdadis, he's from Cyprus um, of Greek descent. His mother is Greek Cypriot. Um, so he is essentially the hometown guy. And these people are vocal, they're loud, the support for him. I, saw, I was there a couple of years ago, so I'm trying to qualify. This is on the, the back end of his career. 
and it's qualifying, but he had the Greek support coming out for him. There are people, you know, they've got flags, soccer jerseys. It looks like a soccer game or a Davis Cup tie. Um, just getting loud for Baghdad. And that support, <clears throat> excuse me, that support, by the way, begets more support. When you're watching on TV and you see that energy, um, it's infectious. And that's kind of what, it, what endeared me to him as well. Obviously, his game speaks for itself. But when, when you're being cheered for in that manner, the adulation, it's, it's totally, uh, it's, it's a great ex- fan experience for sure. Third set, he breaks Roddick and serves to go up 4-2. Uh, fourth set, tied at 2-2. These are kind of the moments of the match that I got here. Fourth set, tied at 2-2. Baghdadis has three break points. Roddick double faults and Baghdadis takes command. Um, interesting stat. He's leading in aces at this point in the match. He's got 16 aces. Again, that's Roddick's game, right? And it's not working out for him. Here's an example, Brian, of defense into offense. And I believe that Roddick is serving. Yeah. It's the shot right here that is amazing right here. Yeah, he's able to just uncork it for a because Roddick couldn't do enough to get it away from him. And that's also Roddick being a little bit uncomfortable in those longer, drawn-out rallies. That's not where Roddick wants to be. Um, so that's just those kinds of... Once you're able to draw him into that, then you, you some new options develop. Versus Lubicic, five sets back and forth. This is another amazing sort of thing for Baghdadis here. He had two... Five setters, back-to-back five setters leading up to the final. The one I want to focus on, though, unless you have anything on Lubacic, is the Nalbandian match, semifinal. Nalbandian was up a set and up 5-1 in the second set. This does not help my cause, by the way. My No. Um, Baghdadis gets it to 5-4. Uh, hits a winner to get it to 5-5 on Nalbandian's serve. Now, Bandian does edge out the set, goes up two sets to love, okay? This is just some great epic tennis. Down two sets in a Grand Slam, and you make, it, you make your way through to the final. These are the kind of the moments that make you wonder how did they get there, or the, the, the burdens and the obstacles you had to overcome to get to your objective. This is a great key moment for his match, for this tournament at least. Two sets to love. Baghdadis plays like he has nothing to lose. And this is one of the things that I love as a fan, right? When they have nothing to lose, this is a classic Djokovic moment. Uh, Sometimes it's the best and only way to play. Um, He just goes for broke on every shot. Um, Now, Bandian up 4-2 in the fifth set. Again, Marcos's back is against the wall. The broadcast suggests now Bandian was choking. Uh, relinquishing all his winning positions is what was said. Um, do you agree with that? Was he choking? I mean, choking is a really tough word. Um, no, because he was never that close to the finish line. And we, yeah, up two sets to love. You're, you're close to the finish line, but that's tennis. You can't run out the clock. You've got to win that third set. That So Baghdadis wins the third set and you're thinking, Oh, well, this is, okay, this is interesting, but you're still probably not thinking he's going to come back and win this match. The fourth set is where it went very pear-shaped for Nalbandian. He had three break chances to go 4-4 in the fourth. Then he'd be serving to go up 5-4. He'd be on the cusp of getting to the final. Instead, does not break, so he goes down 5-3. 
Baghdadis wins. And once you have that moment, that's when it starts to really creep into your head. Like, wow, two hours ago, I was up two sets to love. I had these break chances. The crazy thing, we talk about the fan support. You watch the videos and you hear it. Baghdadis is three points from the finish line. The skies open up, and this is before the roof. So they had to leave the court, rain delay, at the worst possible time for Baghdadis. Three points. And it was not the kind of light drizzle or a couple of drops that you try to, if you're normally Baghdadis, you're the winner, you're the winning player in that situation. You want to just get this done, get off the court. There's no choice. I mean, the sky's open. Um, so to be able to come back and just inch it over the line is remarkable. You talked about the theater aspect of this all. This match had everything from the crowd, the drama. It's, you know, the old Shakespearean tragedy, the tragic figures now bandy in here, but just for Baghdadis being the hero, this was remarkable. 4-4 in the fifth. Baghdadis gets three break points, serving for the match out of nowhere to add to the drama, the rain. Slight delay, and he wins it with an ace. I love that. That's one of my like thing. You're talking about like the the journeyman of tennis. One of my favorite ways to see a match end is when uh, it's aced out. It's, it's there's like a an extra level of gratification. And in this match in particular, it got him to his first Grand Slam final. It was a beautiful way to end it. Um, where does this rank in comeback victories for you? This is a pretty significant comeback victory. Coming back two sets to love to win it and then go to a Grand Slam final. That's, for lack of a better word, that's epic. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And it's fascinating to me. You know, we talk a lot about how it's sometimes hard in tennis to think about things in the moment because of the, the way the schedule is. And there's always a tournament. There's always something next. Um, but just thinking about the, we talked about the drama of this all. When you think of 2006 in tennis, I think you could say that as far as the majors, Two of the three most dramatic matches involved Marcos Baghdadis that year. This one and his match against Andre Agassi, which he lost at the U.S. Open a few months later. That was Agassi's last U.S. Open in that late night win, which you were in the crowd for, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the most dramatic matches of 2006 at majors, Marcus Baghdadis, a participant on very opposite ends of two of them. I think that's why I have such an affinity for him, too. You absolutely nailed it on the head. These are indelible matches. These are, this is why you watch tennis to get matches like this. And he was a part of both of them. Okay, so back-to-back five setters against top 10 players, Brian, just for the honor to face Roger in the final, right? To your point, there's no time to celebrate because you still have to play Roger Federer. Um, watch and comment. I'm going to jump right in. Baghdadis moved like Agassi. That's what I wrote down. Uh, this is him earning himself a break point in the first set, which he won. I love that. That is talent being realized. It's great. Very much so. But also, just play the end of that point one more time. Okay, let me go right back. Hold on. Yeah, it's absolutely talent being realized. But it's also, you know, Exhibit A, we talk about how, how Federer's backhand could be a weakness at times because he just floats back this one-hander. And Baghdadis has all day to post up at the baseline and just crush a winner. Now he has to do it and execute the shot, but he's able to do that. And that's what we talk about when we talk about, at times, the one chink in the Federer armor, especially around this time, because it hadn't been so thoroughly worn out by Nadal yet that he hadn't tightened it up a little bit. 
Bagdettis goes up 2-0 in the second set. Again, it's favoring he's him. He's up a set. He's up a set, and he's up 2-0 in the second set. Uh, this very much looks like a window for him. Federer goes up 6-5 in the second set, down love 40 on Bagdatis's serve, and this is what unfolds. Yeah, that's... Federer just putting on the pressure. Down love 40. Yeah, that's, that's hey, something's not working here. I need to do something and change it up. So I'll come in, play at net. I'll win two points at net. Then he's hanging out at the baseline. He's pressuring Baghdadis, not letting him get comfortable in any kind of situation. And it's just Federer. That's we talk about the all-around game, the versatility. After that happens, he looks like somebody who just had his wallet you know, take it from his pocket in Times Square. Like, it's that look, like, what just happened? Like, I just got hustled. But no, instead of, you know, having bringing this into a tie break, maybe go up two sets to love in a major final against Roger Federer. Now it's one all, and the hill just got a little bit higher to climb. And we're not discounting his game in any way. And, I can, and you can't even, as much as I would love to say that Roger was like a pool shark and letting him rack up a... Uh, a three-point handicap and then just coming back and decimating him. It is it is moments like what you just saw, what we just saw, that take the life out of the other player. Uh, the, the, the greats obviously let it go. And it's one of the things I think Rafa Nadal is the best at is the last point is the last point. Um, and somehow, some way, I've never talked to him, I've never, he's never verbalized this, but somehow, some way, you just see it in his motion, in his demeanor, Agassi, same thing too. Like people, a lot of people kind of mock the way he walked from one side of the court to the other. That's his way of saying that point is done. Next point. And this is what you don't want to see what Baghdadis did, because that's telling, that's telling the Roger Federer's of the world that I got you by the throat now. Yeah. Final two sets. Baghdadis was someplace else. He got calf cramps. He fell down midpoint. Do you remember someone going down like that in a final? Um, do I have the video of it? I do not have the video of it. But he literally falls, and Roger has to check on him at the net, and he tells him he's okay. But I, I can't remember I'm seeing trying to think in a like final. I, I definitely see it, but I'm trying to think if I've actually seen it in a final. It, it happens. What stakes that high? You know, it was a shame a couple of years ago at Wimbledon when uh, Marin Cilich was his feet he had some serious yes. blisters apparently against Federer in the final and but I don't know if he actually fell but you know you're seeing somebody who is not physically near their best yeah um it, it was that same kind of feeling the only example that comes to mind for me very acutely because we just watched it not too long ago was Safin dropping Federer in the Australian Open um yeah. and to win the match actually okay so Federer wins in four Brian he's four and oh against Baghdadis at this point. We'll go 7-1 and one for his career. Uh, the only loss being at Indian Wells in 2010 in an early round, I think. Rod Laver had Roger shook this tournament. His acceptance speech was incoherent at best. Any reaction, any thought, any commentary on the importance of this tournament? This is number seven. He is entering GOAT status if he hasn't already, but this one really broke him down to pieces. Um, I think you get more of an appreciation for this tournament um, 
Because it's easy to look at this tournament and think, okay, he played an unseeded guy in the final. You know, how how much of a test was this? But when you look at what his 2006 turned into, I think you pick up a greater appreciation for it. The Rod Laver aspect is interesting because now one of Roger's big business events, of course, is the Laver Cup, the team competition that his management company started in conjunction with some other stakeholders. Um, Rod Laver is certainly involved. And you see at the Laver Cup and anytime they're promoting it, this reverence that Federer treats him with. And you see Federer, you know, he's been pretty open about his heroes growing up. Um, and they were the guys who were, you know, Mats Wielander. And there's a picture of him with Jimmy Connors and he was a ball kid. And you, you can look at him seeing like, oh, I, I like these guys, but he was older then. So yeah. he I probably had some dreams that he could maybe make a living in this tennis thing. But for somebody like Rod Laver, who was, done before he was born that's like this iconic just different kind of mount olympus type thing you're talking about so i think when he gets to that point that's where it it hits him a little bit differently it is a beautiful thing i mean it just the the natural reaction is you're in the space working in this space and the guy that you worship hands you the trophy i mean it's it's got to be an otherworldly experience um and i for one love the speeches when he shows his raw emotion because it's hard to do anything good in life or to finish something or to climb that mountain. And you don't have to be your most articulate in those moments. You can actually sound like a, like a nine-year-old kid. And, and, and you know, um, he does not give you the best pull quotes, but I, I, I dig the sobbing. I think it's great. It's human. Um, contextualize this match, this tournament, and we'll take a bathroom break and come back and do our second of our double header here today. He's 104 weeks at number one now, Brian. Seven Grand Slam titles. He's only lost 10 matches since 2004. He's on level terms with John McEnroe. We're going to talk about Rafa Nadal a lot in the next episode, but just set the stage. Where are we at? How do you feel about his legacy and his career at this point? Well, I mean, this is history because by this point, it's the middle of Jan- it's the end of January. 2006 for the year he's already got two titles he's riding what is a hardcore winning streak of i think 52 straight wins um that's going to be interrupted very shortly which we're going to talk about in the next episode um he is the world number one he's a machine and i think contextually it's that's what you say about federer but i think it's important to also tip your cap to marcus Bagdatis because of you know, we've seen Federer really blow past guys in major finals, guys who were not Nadal, Djokovic, Murray. Um, and there are times that people kind of lump those others, the, you know, the the Mark Philippouses of the world into into kind of one group. But Baghdadis, I think, stands out with how how well he fought in this final. He was not feeling his best towards the end, the road he had to travel just to get to the final. So I think you remember it. Okay, it's another historic step for Federer, but it was a really cool experience for the tournament and for tennis as a whole, and certainly for Marcos Bagdadis. My note was it was a flavor final, meaning that you got to see Roger play somebody else and you got to see Roger play somebody who could potentially reach levels of greatness that you know, and be a fan favorite and all that stuff. Okay. So next episode, we're going to be talking about 2006's Wimbledon. Uh, This has been a lot of fun as always, Brian. I will see you next time. See you, Vic.